MSW Media. This week, a federal judge granted CNN's request for emergency relief, restoring the press credential that the Trump administration took away from Jim Acosta, CNN's chief White House correspondent. The White House's decision to revoke Acosta's press credential generated an intense debate over Trump's attacks on the press and the White House's ability to regulate the conduct of journalists. Is Trump undermining the First Amendment? What can be done to protect the freedom of the press? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor and a CNN legal analyst, and I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a comedian and WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, I have to say it's rare that CNN is the news of the week. Usually CNN reports on the news of the week. Uh, but I will say this week there was a lot of attention uh, that was paid to this battle over uh, Jim Acosta's access to the White House briefing room because the implications were significant. You know, the Trump administration liked to point out that other CNN journalists were still in the room. But if, this, if the president and the White House can determine which journalists that it allows in, essentially what it can do is punish journalists who are being aggressive or are calling out the administration. Well, Renato, you talked about whether or not this is an attack on the First Amendment. And obviously people have conversations, you know, what you can and can't say or whatever happened to our First Amendment rights to say whatever we want. I don't have to be politically correct. You know, but there are, we talk about how there are also ramifications. There are consequences to different things. You could be fired because you've said something that's <clears throat> inappropriate or reflects, reflects badly on your company. In this instance, talking about the, the freedom of the press and the First Amendment, we are talking about somebody who occupies the White House, which is our White House, which is the people's house. We choose who is there. And we in the press is there to be our eyes and ears, to ask the questions about what's going on. And for the president to decide who can and can't be in the room, it shouldn't be up to him. Well, that yeah, this is the core of what the First Amendment is about. So this was very much the sort of fight that is at the core of the big First Amendment battles of our history, which is the president of the United States trying to control the press's access to information, uh, the press's access to him. So uh, there's no question that it implicates bigger, broader um, principles that are at the bedrock of our system of government. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned that people often use the term First Amendment when they're talking about, uh, you know, political correctness uh, or so-called political correctness or, you know, people feeling that they can't say or don't, you know, or, or can get in trouble for saying certain things. One thing listeners might want to, you know, check up on is that actually the First Amendment only applies when the government mm -hmm. is the one restricting speech. If a private company decides, for example, you know, your your employer decides, you know, we don't want people, uh, you know, making certain comments or talking about certain subjects, uh, they are free to do so. And your um, recourse for that is to go find a different job or, or go work somewhere else. 
but but the but here what we have is the government there's no there's no dispute the white house is the government um making a decision about about access uh, that journalists could have so um you know here you know we've had i'd say to put this in a broader context you know trump has said the press is the enemy of the american people trump has attacked cnn right. specifically at length he has been very insulting and rude towards journalists he's he repeatedly calls journalists fake news just this morning, uh, he he you know called out and said a New York Times article was fake. Now, Maggie Haberman responded and said that you know in fact you know she kind of fact checked his own tweet. But once again, he called them the the enemy of the American people. So we have Trump having a very personal, direct attack on the press. But here, this is the first time where it went beyond mere words. Usually, Trump is using the First Amendment and the protections afforded by the First Amendment to attack the First Amendment. Here. Uh, he was he was going beyond that and and restricting access and that's what got him into trouble. And that's the thing is that he takes it so personally and and his attacks on CNN making them an enemy. You know when Jim Acosta is at some of these rallies, there's a point where you think how safe is Jim Acosta in public because the president has directed his made him a target. Well, is it laser focus. Well, yeah. And in, in a prior episode, we talked about, you know, the, the way in which this the hate and the riling up of hate is having an impact on people and is potentially endangering safety of journalists. You know, we had, for example, those bombs that were sent not right. only to CNN, but to other targets of uh, the president's ire. So, you know, just to switch gears for a moment, yeah. you know, one thing that I think uh, is worth saying here is, first of all, you know, there there has been a lot of criticism uh, um, by Democrats of, you know, the fact that Trump has been uh, what, the, what we would term packing the courts. Certainly he has gotten a lot of judges through very quickly uh, now that the rules have changed in the Senate. Uh, but here you had a decision by a, 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 a judge that was appointed by Trump, and it was a decision against the administration. Now, I will say one thing that that listeners should know is that the First Amendment is a core uh, constitutional uh, bedrock that has wide, uh, there's wide agreement from liberal and conservative legal scholars that the First Amendment should be protected. If we went to the Federalist Society, uh, the, the, the conservative legal conference, and we asked them questions about the First Amendment, you would largely um, get similar answers to a lot of folks on the, on the, on the left. So this is something where no matter what your ideology, the, the courts tend to give wide protection to the First Amendment. And that's a, a sort of a tradition of courts. Uh, the, the, the courts have protected the First Amendment uh, in, in a very robust way, uh, really, for, for decades. And that is, um, I think, reflective of the fact that the courts believe it is a foundational principle of our system of government and the constitutional order that we have. But in any event... Um, I think it is worth noting because a lot of times what I'll see on on, uh, Twitter or elsewhere, people ask me, well, this is a Trump-appointed judge, this is an Obama-appointed judge. It doesn't always determine the outcome. It certainly it means something, and I think it's it's certainly you can take into account a judge's history. Um, I don't mean to suggest that Justice Ginsburg and Justice Kavanaugh are going to come to the same decisions. (laughs) Really? Right. But it's worth noting that, that in this instance, um, the rule of law meant something. You know, when we uh, see these updates and, and, you know, leaks from the White House and aides are saying this and that, I wonder what happened when President Trump discovered or learned that a judge he appointed had made this decision. Because in my opinion, the president takes 
everything personally. And he had to have seen that as a blow against him. Well, this was one of the first times where um, Trump did not lash out and attack the judge and attack the decision. You know, basically what he said was, you know, okay, you know, we got this ruling against us. We're going to, you know, change things going forward. It, It was very muted response by him. And perhaps it was because he appointed the judge. Um, what do you think he means by change things going forward? That sounds ominous. Well, I, uh, to be fair, I was not quoting him. I was okay. paraphrasing. I gotcha. But, but certainly <laughs> what he did talk about and what the White House talked about was imposing um, different rules going forward on the press. So let's talk a little bit about the, the decision. So the, this was not a First, uh, a first Amendment decision. This okay. was a Fifth Amendment decision. So what, what the, ju- the judge made no decision whatsoever about um, whether or not this violated the First Amendment. He put that off to the side. And what he said was uh, that he that he granted the temporary restraining order requested by CNN on the basis of the Fifth Amendment. Now, the Fifth Amendment gives us due process, uh, gives due process uh, protections to all of us when the government takes away our life, liberty, property. So, for example, if the government, um, you know, takes away, um, you know, your, you know, your job or some benefit that you had, you know, your Medicare benefits are taken away, it can't do that without affording you due process. That's what the due process clause means. So the judge's decision is basically saying the White House is interfering with Jim Acosta's ability to pursue life, liberty, and have. That, well, I it's, mean, is that it's taking away something he had, a hard pass, right? And a hard pass is just essentially a press credential that gives him unfettered access. But the, but the White House gave it to him. So, you know, what I'm correct. Saying? And just like the, the, the government gives you your Medicare benefits. Okay. But then if it decides it takes them away, uh, then then you are entitled to have due process. Okay. That's the way it works. So, you, you know, the 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 there's a decision from 1977 that was pretty much on point uh, uh, talking about the Secret Service denying access to journalists and the court relied on that. Uh, and essentially what the court was saying is you've given Acosta access. You can't take uh, access away from Acosta and not from other journalists without having some sort of due process. And what that would mean generally is you'd have rules in place. You would have a stated reason for why that that would fit into those rules for why Acosta's pass was denied. Then you'd have some sort of process where he could present his um, case. He could have an opportunity to be heard. Um, He could call witnesses and, you know, both sides could present evidence and someone would decide whether or not this was an appropriate um, uh, denial of his access. Well, I thought it was interesting that Fox News was joined the journalist with CNN standing with them. And I think part of that is if the White House does change their rules or if the judge had not ruled this way, what does that mean for future press rooms? Right. Let's say the next president says, well, we don't want Fox News, which I think President Obama actually tried at one point and then reversed his decision. I think he didn't want him at some event or yeah, something, so, not to remove him from the press room but, entirely. But, but yeah, I think that— Restrict their access. Well, certainly. Look, I think what we have seen is, you know, particularly starting in, in really around 1994, from, from my recollection, is an increasing partisanship. And, you know, the Republicans moved to the right, 
And in response, Democrats have moved to the left, and there's been more and more of a divide between the two parties. And more, I think, more and more, um, you know, as Republicans have been aggressive, Democrats are matching their tactics. So I, if I was Fox News, I would be concerned. And I think all journalists should be concerned because the future of their of their profession and, frankly, the future of the free press in our democracy depends on journalists um, being free to write and say whatever they please and not being retaliated against. And and that's really w- what the concern is here. Right, because the, the White House makes decisions, as the Chicago Tribune was writing uh, yesterday, I believe, you know, the White House makes decisions about our health, about the, the air that we breathe, the water that we drink, all these different issues that we want to know how those decisions are made and the press needs to be able to be there and ask the questions. Otherwise, the White House can operate under the cloak of darkness without our knowledge of anything. Exactly. So, you know, one thing that is, I think, important to note is that sometimes little things, subtle things, can have a huge impact uh, on your ability to do your job. So, for example, right, mm-hmm. we all have been in a workplace and, you, you you know, there are times where people feel like, well, this person's got preferential treatment. The boss gives this person certain advantages, freezes this other person out. That person doesn't get to go to certain events. That person doesn't get certain responsibilities. And those subtle things make a difference and they can influence your behavior. You realize, OK, to please the boss, I need to do X, Y or Z. I think the concern that a lot of folks have, not only about this action taken against Acosta, but at the potential rules that could be imposed uh, on journalists uh, by the White House and uh, subsequent to this ruling, is that you could imagine uh, kind of on the edges an incentive to take it easy on the White House because if you oh. are really aggressive against Trump, you're going to get your past taken away. And if, you know, if you question them too heavily, you won't get called on. And, you know, if you do this or that, you know, you might whatever, you know, you might be restricted in some way. In the end, you know, what, you know maybe it will, it will take some time, but the, the thought would be on the edges, reporters will be pulling their punches a little bit. Isn't it amazing? We've gotten, it's taken us until the 45th president, and there have been dozens, it, probably all of them have had an issue with a journalist at some point, and they've never come to this uh, juncture where they say, you know, we're going to take away your, your, your past or you can't ask those kinds of questions. We, I, I, at least as far as I've been trying to do research, I know that there have been efforts to suppress the press in the past, even going all the way back to President Lincoln. Jefferson had a problem with the press. But this is bizarre where it's, it's, it's come to President Trump to not only want to re- restrict them, but as we talked about, make them the enemy of the people and make them a target. It's it's kind of I don't know. I'm going to say it's despicable. I'm just going to have to say that. Well, I think it's maybe deplorable. What I would you know, what I would say because <laughs> is dangerous. Yeah. And and to me, what worries me is the danger that it poses to our democracy. You know, Donald Trump does a lot of things that I find uh, abhorrent. And this to me is so important because it goes to the core of what our democracy is about. If he's able to convince enough people in this country that they can't believe what they read, what they see, you know, he'll say, don't believe, you know, it's like what you're reading, what you see is not don't believe it. Believe me, essentially, is what Trump has been saying. That's very, very dangerous for our country uh, because it eliminates an important check on the government's power. So to me, you know, one of the, the values of a free press is that they limit what the government can do, because when the government tries to do things in secret, 
um, the journalists can, you know, find out about it and let the public know. And that transparency can be a check on government power. You know, this, just this week we had, for example, the government by mistake uh, disclosing that Julian Assange had been charged with a crime. And that was just a journalist noting in a there was a, a government document where by mistake, when the when the prosecutor copy and pasted. Uh, from another document, they forgot to change the word Assange on certain pages, what? and and that was revealed. But my point is that's an example of how a vigorous journalist who was really keeping, uh, you know, you know the the his eyes out was able to catch something and let the world know. And it's a check on what the government does uh, that journalists are out there, you know, constantly searching for the truth. So one topic I think is worth discussing is what sort of restrictions can be placed on the press um, by the White House. So one thing I'll just say from a legal perspective uh-huh. is the rule is essentially that the government can place what are called their neutral time, place, or manner restrictions. So, for example, you know the government can say, you can hold your rally in this part, of, in this street, but not in that street. Okay. As long as all the Republicans and the Democrats and everybody in between or on the edges can all are all is all stuck on the same side of the street when they want to protest, that's fine because it's neutral. It's just saying for safety reasons or something else, we we don't we don't want you on this street. the The problem is when the government is discriminating on the basis of viewpoint, and the fault line in the lawsuit that CNN filed as to the First Amendment issue was whether or not Acosta was being discriminated against based on his viewpoint. CNN, you know, put all of Trump's anti-CNN statements out there, you know, his tweets attacking CNN and so on, and made it very clear that from their, their perspective, this was Trump attacking CNN. The White House argued, no, Acosta was rude. He wouldn't give up the microphone. He asked too many questions. He was being he was uh, not uh, displaying proper decorum. And that is the reason he was singled out and not other CNN journalists or other uh, journalists from from the news organizations. The president has criticized. Well, and the thing is, even in that press conference alone, he, he the president himself went after several journalists in the room. But starting with Jim Acosta, he interrupted him during the question. He mocked him. He was making fun of him and he was combative from the very beginning. I mean, yes, Jim Acosta said, I want to challenge you on something. Right. He set it up that way, too. It, it was for me. It all seemed like it was for show the moment the president came out there. It seemed as though, you know, he's just the fact that he chose Jim Acosta. It wasn't it was going to be drama. But I will say this. uh, When you talk about the, you know, the sort of rules and decorum and things like that, I have been in the press box in the General Assembly in Springfield. And even in the two houses, in the Senate and in in the two chambers, in the Senate and in the uh, House of Representatives, there are rules for being in the press box, whether or not you can take photos. uh, You have to ask permission in the Senate. But in the House of Representatives, as long as you're not taking them uh, embarrassing photos, like they actually ask. It's sort of like out of respect. Don't take pictures of someone who's eating or doing something that's not necessarily, you know, uh, I guess, attractive. Uh, you know, just out of they, they ask it out as a favor almost. Um, you're obviously not allowed to make any noise. But, you know, when it comes to being in the press room, they're really I mean, it's it, there aren't any rules. They don't tell you, you know, you have to be from a certain outlet. You can only ask a certain ty- kinds of questions. From what I understand, uh, I've never asked a question. I'll be honest. Oh, no, I 
have. It's hard because I'm not trained as a journalist. That's a very specific uh, background. You know, you have to know what you're doing in those situations. So my concern is when they decide to come out with these rules, you know, that's still all very arbitrary when it comes to what kinds of questions or how, what their tone is. Are they being too rude? Are they being too aggressive? And when you say that there's, you know, the government has the uh, sort of uh, responsibility to determine how you can express yourself. What's that going to look like in the press room? You know, who has oversight of <clears throat> what the White House can determine is acceptable and unacceptable when it comes to the press's, you know, demeanor? I well, guess. yeah, the White House would have to set that forth in its rules. But I would say, just speaking here as a lawyer, that if the the White House would be on very solid ground if they had what I'll, what I would say is. Um, uh, objective criteria that can be tied to something uh, that um, is is not is neutral is related to content. So, for example, let's say that the White House said that journalists could only ask two questions okay. uh, before handing over the microphone. It's numerical. Um, it uh, doesn't discriminate on the basis of viewpoint. And they could argue that there's a neutral reason for it. They want to give up more journalists an opportunity to ask a question and so on and so forth. That's the sort of thing that I think would be easy for the, the White House to defend. Harder to defend would be something like, you know, uh, you cannot you must display proper decorum in the White House at all times. If you had a rule like that, it's unclear what decorum means. There could be an argument that it's being um, displayed in a, it's being uh, enforced in a selective way, and so on and so forth. But even there, it makes it would make CNN's life harder. So if you know on the White House side of it, if they were trying to set this up in a way to exclude certain journalists, they could probably find ways to do so. Uh, by finding what I'll call, I'll call a pretext to exclude them. In other words, um, they could constantly look for times in which a journalist makes a mistake, and no one's perfect. You know, journalists are human beings. Uh, you can imagine at your place of work if you were constantly watched. You know, if somebody was looking for a reason to fire you, uh, they could eventually find one. And, and here, if you're looking for reasons to exclude certain journalists, you might be able to do so. I'm not saying that will happen or won't happen, but it's certainly, a, uh, I think, a reasonable fear that people have as to whether or not that will happen, given the hostility uh -huh. that the president has shown towards the press. I mean, it has been palpable. Trump has um, attacked the press, and I think it's with a deliberate strategy, and at one point he admitted this, um, to a journalist saying that it was because he didn't want the public to believe them when they were writing critical stories of him. Oh, I think that his entire uh, time in, in the White House and even before has been this entire focus of delegitimizing the press. And, and it has worked to his advantage. I mean, there are people at WGN Radio <clears throat> who people, they send us threats. There's There have been hosts that have been told, uh, you know, go kill yourself. Honestly, this, this is the mm -hmm. way people talk to journalists. And not that this is anything new. As I mentioned, you know, throughout this country's history, there have been politicians who are completely uh, want to get rid of the press. And, and even President Lincoln suppressed almost 300 news outlets that were sympathetic to the Confederacy. He changed his mind during the Civil War. And that's the one thing that I don't think this president is capable of is intellectual growth. He's not able to change his mind on a position. He locks in. And that's all there is to it. End of story. Well, you know, it's interesting to me. You know, one thing that is really 
um, clearly gotten into his head is he's very been very fixated on CNN. It's interesting to me because I've appeared on, not only on CNN, but before I was uh, signed on to CNN, I was on other networks like MSNBC. And it seems to me that Trump is much more focused on attacking CNN than he is on MSNBC or hey, other. Why is that? Yeah, I, to me, what I think it is, is CNN is an outlet that tries really hard to um, have a both sides sort of approach. Right. And sometimes they're criticized for it. I would say many of the folks who follow me on Twitter, uh, there's not a number of them that'll tell me, I can't watch you on CNN because there's always somebody in the other side. That and they drive me nuts, and I am, um, you know, they're they're progressive right. or or Democrat, and I just can't stand you always being opposite some guy who worked in the Trump White House okay. or whatever. Sure. And CNN goes out of its way to do that, and I think, you know, uh, is MSNBC, uh, you know, all, also network I was on. I think it's a fine network, but at times it doesn't. It will it will not present that other side, right? It will at times at times. <laughs> And so we'll, we'll throw them a bone. Is that what you're saying? Then? Well, sometimes MSNBC they do, does? sometimes yeah. they don't. But, right. but all I'm saying is I think it depends on the show and the context and everything else. But my point is they, they're, they're, they, don't, they don't bend over backwards as much to do that in a way that CNN is, generally does. I mean, that's, that's something that is, I think, a focus at CNN. And so I think it's more important for him to discredit CNN as an outlet. As a place where people might see them as being fair and balanced as opposed to the, the network that claims to be? Mm-hmm. I think that's right. I mean, I think I feel the same way about the New York Times and the Washington Post, mm-hmm. which he's attacked at length. You know, these are these are uh, publications. You know, the New York Times, despite being attacked by uh, Trump, has been very clear that it's not taking a side and it doesn't view its uh, it does not view itself as needing to do that. Now, CNN is at times. Um, responded to Trump's attacks, but it's done so by talking about facts and truth and facts matter, I think is a new uh, slogan (laughs) over there. And I, which to their credit, I mean, it's a hard thing. I mean, I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer about how to deal with this. You know, in other words, I think a lot of journalists felt that the way to handle these attacks from Trump was to put their head down and report the facts. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's a genuine debate amongst the press about how to respond to this. Do oh, you sure. call out Trump right. in the way that CNN has done, CNN's corporate arm has done? Do you take the approach the New York Times has and largely stay silent? Um, not always, but largely stay silent. You know, there are, there are some news outlets, for example, there was a debate today. You know, there's a, a reporter for the Toronto Star the, uh, who repeatedly has made it a, a personal mission of his, aside from his reporting, to call, to call out and, and um, document every single false statement that Trump has made. Thousands and thousands right. of them. And literally every time Trump makes a speech, this man... Um, to his credit, uh, you know, Daniel Dale, uh, he literally, uh, you know, will tweet out every, you know, a correction every time Trump makes a false statement. Um, you know, and he criticizes journalists who don't do that. Journalists who aren't, who are reporting on Trump's speech and do not make that the focus. In his mind, every story about a Trump speech would say there's 48 false statements wow. in it as the lead. Right. In his mind, other journalists have taken a different approach because, from their their perspective, every the majority of their readers know that Trump makes false statements. That's not news anymore. Mm-hmm. What's news is something new he said or different he said than the other speeches. 
I'm not saying one is the right or wrong, but it's it's a very challenge. It's a challenge for the press. Oh, no doubt about it, because the the press has been used in so many ways to just carry out and amplify his message. Right, the caravan that it was an invasion. The fact that they kept repeating it made it true for so many people. I mean, that's just the fact of that. The other thing is, you know, the moment that Kellyanne Conway said, and I can't remember how many weeks into this administration it happened when she said there are alternative facts, that's when all bets were off. And, and I mean, everyone just went, well, so what does that even mean? You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, it, it's it's something that, is ha- that has its roots uh, in prior administrations as well. You know, Karl Rove was quoted, although, you know, he denies making the quote or, he, you know, there was there was some um, there 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 was, um, uh, you know, some some an allegation, I would say, that he talked about, you know, that uh, the other side was lived in a reality based uh, community, so to speak, and they were reality based, and they on his side they they were in the mode of shaping reality. Right, they, they were they, they, they were they were fact based. You know, f- you know they were not as based on facts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they they were able to shape perception, and I think that. Um, you know, in many ways, tr- what Trump is doing is taking that just to a new level. Oh, yeah. No, the whole idea that perception is reality. The uh, the moment that people started talking about, you know, well, the press just needs to stop reporting on what he says. Well, how does that work? Or even the idea that all the press should have boycotted the press room when Jim Acosta's hard pass was revoked. Well, then what? Then they, the, the White House gets what exactly what they want is silencing the press. So, you know, as, as difficult as it, as it is to make those decisions on what to report, not report, they got to keep taking their swings. Yeah, I will tell I, I one thing I will let listeners know is I spent a lot of time trying to get White House correspondents uh, on this podcast to talk about the subject. And it was amazing uh, how many of them told me they were not able to discuss this topic. I thought that was an interesting Point. I mean, people who I know and I've had and I have talked to and I've helped, you know, give them context and understanding when they were making their stories. And, you know, we've talked in the past. We're saying, well, you know, I can't do it on this topic. Right. I can't talk about uh, what Trump is doing regarding, you know, hard pass or so on or so forth. I don't know why that is. It may be that they, they just feel that they aren't making themselves the news. And I will say that some journalists have indicated that they are critical of, of Jim Acosta because they feel that he makes himself the news. I know back in the 80s, there really? was, uh, an, uh, you know, some journalists felt that way about Sam Donaldson. So that's nothing, okay. nothing new. Sure. But, um, you know, that that is the view of some of them. They may just not want to make themselves the news. But others, I uh, my sense was, is they didn't want to draw attention to, you know, to themselves and take a side in this particular dispute. Well, look at how much they come under attack just being in the room or asking a question. In particular, you and I talked earlier about uh, the women of color who he uses as just this, as, as pinatas. As soon as they raise their hand, he'll insult their intelligence, their appearance, their professional abilities. It's it's startling, and uh, and and I know that uh, there's a there's a film actually out, a little a short film, but April Ryan, Abby Phillip, Yumiche Elcindor. It's it's you know he targets them, and and nobody seems to really even blink an eye. It's just kind of like, yep, that's how he talks to these women. Well, we've come to accept that. Yeah. From Trump, I mean, we've come to accept him commenting on women's appearance or. Uh, denigrating their intelligence or so on or so forth. And you're right. I mean, he certainly seems to have a different perception of people of color than he does uh, of of white people in terms of how he talks and how he treats those 
those people. It's just, it's, I think it's a fact that can't really be denied. And it's not just how he treats journalists, of course. It's how he talks about shootings uh, and other things. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about how he treats shooters who are white versus shooters who aren't and so on and so forth. Um, you know, at this, at this stage, uh, I will say this. I mean, I do admire some of those women like Abby and April who just put their heads down and do their jobs nonetheless. That's, that's right. very challenging. You know, Abby and April are both are at CNN, and I, you know, I've you know, been on TV with them, and I will say that you know, very professional. And you know, it's, that's one of the things that I think is a challenge about being a journalist. I have had the good fortune, I think, of being able to interact with a lot of journalists um, you know, over the years, and I admire the work that they do. And one of the challenges I think that they have is being, not becoming the story themselves and reporting the right. news, even when it's challenging to do so. Uh, you know, I, I read uh, Katie Turr's book, for example, about the, what she had endured during the Trump campaign and some of the insults she had and some of the interactions that she had that were similar to the ones that you mentioned uh, you were referring to with Jim Acosta, but I think were amplified because she's a woman and I think she's somebody who I think at times feared for her, you know, feared for her safety. And she reported, you know, she's somebody who, you know, is very devoted to being a, 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 a journalist and a balanced journalist and viewed herself as reporting on what was happening in the Trump campaign, regardless of, you know, how she was being treated. And she, I think, tried very hard to report it in a very fair and accurate way, nonetheless. Well, I, I think that the, the, uh, really the focus has to be for the press, obviously, is to keep showing up. And they are. They're digging in. Uh, as is the White House. It'll be interesting to see how this all plays out, especially if they come out with these new rules. Well, for sure. And I think another thing that we're going to see playing out in the upcoming weeks is um, Julian Assange and whether or not that uh, legal action implicates the First Amendment at all. So um, there has been a lot of debate, and this is something where I think there is legitimate debate on both sides. Um, there's been a lot of debate now that we know that Assange is going to be charged, which is a new news that came out this week uh, through that mistake that I mentioned. Oops. Yeah, oops, <laughs> oops, indeed. I feel bad for that federal prosecutor who made a mistake. You know, when I was a federal prosecutor, we often used templates and you used the old work you did because, you know, you're, you're busy and you're overworked and you're just you're using sure. your, your last one. And usually there's not uh, there's when you make little errors like that, it, the, uh -huh. the consequences aren't aren't grave. You aren't making worldwide news. But oh. um, in, in any event, there's a legitimate debate as to whether or not a prosecution of Assange has for important First Amendment implications for I'll call them, you know, bona fide journalists. In other words, you know, some people would argue, and, you know, for example, Charlie Savage, who I admire in The New York Times, has, you know, wrote a piece this week, you know, putting out the views of a number of people who, who said, you know, who view uh, Assange as somebody you can't legally or meaningfully distinguish from a regular journalist. He's getting information that the government doesn't want you to publish, and he publishes it. And that's their argument is functionally he's the same as a journalist. I don't agree with that. Okay. okay but... I think it is a legitimate point of view. I just one that I disagree with. Um, but I could understand how someone could take that principled position. They're, they could be concerned that it sets a precedent that could cause 
the government to decide that some other person, you know, you could imagine some progressive website or some, you know, or whatever. They decide the Democratic Socialists of America are are also an enemy that needs to be prosecuted. I will say for for me, um, you know, Assange appears to me to be an agent of enemy and foreign intelligence services. Uh, which is what uh, Trump's own CIA, at the time CIA director Pompeo said. I think that that seems accurate. Uh, he appears to be somebody who's acting um, to advance Russia's interests, to releasing information um, in a coordinated way to right. influence a United States election. Now, one, what I will say the other side would argue, and the other side of this intellectual debate would say, well, you know, perhaps there are right wing websites, whether it's the Daily Caller or Infowars or even Fox News who might have that, um, you know, people at Fox News who have that same intent to uh, help Trump get elected. How does you distinguish Assange from them? I think that's going to be a debate that's going to come up in the weeks to come as those charges are revealed. We're going to start seeing First Amendment debates. And to me, that's a much more that that's a much more challenging um, situation uh, and First Amendment uh, conundrum than what happened this week. Even though the White House was trying to make what happened here a close call legally, and I think they got it to a point where as on the First Amendment issues, they could give a, a, a judge who wanted to decide with them some cover. It was not really a close call I to me. Uh, whereas in the Assange thing, I could see Assange having lawyers making very uh, challenging First Amendment arguments unless the government has proof that he was doing something um, along the lines that I said, that he was acting as a foreign, uh, an agent of a foreign government, that he was um, knowingly distributing stolen property, you know, in, involved in the theft of stolen property, not just, you know, uh, happened to find stuff and publish it, but literally was directing people to steal or part of a scheme to steal steal emails, something like that. Well, and, and uh, I'm just curious because this is something that I'm not as informed as far as what Assange, you know, the kind of material, one that he disseminated and how he acquired it, could the uh, could the government use him as a, as a thread to pull to, to uncover other, you know, aspects of espionage? Yeah, no question. I mean, Assange to me would be a very valuable asset uh, if he flipped because not only would he be able to provide information to, for example, Bob Mueller about Whoever he was talking to, was he talking to Roger what? Stone? Was he talking to others related to Trump, et cetera? But also, you know, more importantly, I think, and it's hard to say more or less importantly, but I think in, in from the perspective of the United States, he could give information about our adversaries in the around the world right. and what efforts they're taking to try to undermine uh, our nation. So to me, that's, you know, that's very valuable, very important information that, that could be derived from him. You know, the question is, is there a... Um, a a prosecution that could be brought that would that could be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, and you could imagine a prosecution along the lines of publishing classified um, information, uh, distributing classified information, uh, and then you know there you'd have to the the argument would be 
you know, that his attorneys would make is that he's essentially like the, the New York Times publishing the Pentagon Papers. Although Floyd Abrams, who famously argued the Pentagon Papers case, I think published a very persuasive op-ed in the Washington Journal, uh, Wall Street Journal explaining why he thought those two situations were different. Um, but that is definitely the analogy the Assange and his defenders will raise. And then um, there, on the other end, there's this whole hacking of uh, the DNC emails and so forth. And the, and the question is, what Assange, did Assange know and when did he know it? In other words, there's a lot of people listening to this podcast who may or may not have looked at those emails when they were already online. Maybe they email, maybe they forwarded the, some of the information to their friends. What? But the, their involvement in the dissemination of that information was different than Julian Assange's. And right. the question to me is, what involvement did he have? What did he know about the theft? Was he kind of before the theft agreeing to distribute them if they were stolen, so on and so forth. Well, I, uh, I'm, I've, I'm fascinated by every aspect of this. And uh, as somebody who works in broadcasting, of course, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'll have my ears and eyes open to hear how we progress with uh, protecting the First Amendment. Yeah, I, I will say it's a topic that rarely gets the kind of attention that it got this week. Right. Trump has been attacking the First Amendment every single week that I have his presidency that I can recall. And yet it's drowned out because it's not the to- a topic that affects people's pocketbooks. It's not a topic that affects what your health care or something like that. And the press, you know, doesn't report on itself as much as they're reporting on other things right. that are happening, but it's really important. Well, plus there's so much other crazy going on. It's hard to latch on to this one. I, I think that's absolutely right. But, yeah. but I, I think this, the ruling this week was uh, a hopeful step it, it suggests that no matter what, the judiciary may uh, continue to stand uh, against encroachments on the First Amendment and our constitutional freedoms. Well, thank you for uh, giving, giving me the lowdown on the uh, Fifth Amendment, because I think I told you before that uh, I only know the first, second, and third pretty much. I don't know why I know about the quartering of soldiers, but that's <laughs> clearly <laughs> the most important <laughs> Important amendment. I don't know when um, that's come up since the uh, Revolutionary War, but there it is. Well, there was criticism of the 14th Amendment recently. The president yes, himself criticized it, and that's a very important amendment as well. So yeah, you should I, learn that one, Patty. Yeah, no, no, I do actually know this. Fifth, I uh, brush up a little bit. Fifth and 14th. I got to get my copy of the Constitution. <laughs> so does Trump. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 